Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Laurie McMahon to Books, Books, Books to talk about his debut novel, As Swallows Fly, published in March this year by Ventura Books. Professor McMahon started writing when he was a medical student and has won or been shortlisted for many short story competitions. He's lived and worked all over the world, including in Pakistan, Oxford and Berlin, and he is Professor of Nephrology at Monash University, where he directs a busy medical department. Laurie, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks so much, Nicole. It's great to be here. Would you like to start by telling us what your beautiful book, As Swallows Fly, is about? Uh, I think at its heart, the the novel is about relationships and the, the need uh, to be aware of ourselves and our vulnerabilities and to open ourselves to other people, um, no matter who they are or where they're from. And uh, I think that this novel... Uh, does this um, through finding two completely different people who really couldn't be more different um, apart perhaps from their gender but um, they uh, one is a is a young girl from uh, an isolated village in Pakistan and the other uh, as you know is uh, um, a plastic surgeon in a teaching hospital in Melbourne and the story is um, how each learns to uh, open to the other um, and uh, finally to uh, depend on that relationship um, and to bring it uh, to bring it to its fulfillment and I think that um, if people take that uh, aspect from uh, what they read then it's been a success. I'd like to ask you to read a short extract from near the beginning of the novel which is when it opens, set in Pakistan, and this is where we're introduced to one of the two of the main female protagonists, uh, Malika, and also to someone else. Could you read that extract for us, please? Yes, of course. Um, as you say, this is uh, just as uh, uh, Malika and Tahir, who are um, in the early parts in particular, uh, introduced to the village. When the policeman returned, uh, Malika and Tahir followed him to another part of the village. They stopped in front of a hut and the policeman called out a name, waiting until a woman emerged from inside. She stood in the shade at the doorway, her arms folded. The policeman took off his hat and wiped his balding head with his handkerchief. Peace to you, cousin, he said. And to you, she said. It has been a long time. Why do you come to visit me now? I have a favour to ask. He turned to the children. The woman followed his gaze and looked back at him. Two children is more than a favour, cousin. She turned to a young woman who had emerged from the next hut. Fetch some water, Nadia, they will be thirsty. She turned back to the policeman. Even one child is costly, Razak. They are old enough to work. They will work hard. They are good children. She looked 
children again and her eyes narrowed. They are not of the same blood. No. What happened? A bus accident in the mountains east of here. God looks after his own. Their parents were not lucky. The woman's eye dwelled on the boy's white jubber. He is Muslim, she said. He will change. We will see. The policeman smiled and wiped his head again. There is a small problem with the girl cousin. She has not spoken since the accident. The woman stepped across to Malika, held a finger beneath her chin and looked into her eyes. Malika looked back. The woman's eyes were dark, not hard, but without humour. She missed her mother's face. When was this accident, the woman asked, a month ago. The woman turned to him. She is pretty. She will survive. Has no one called for them? We have contacted the boy's family, but it was a love marriage, and the family see the accident as kismet. They say his lot has been ordained. And the girl? Unusual. No family other than the parents. That is kismet also, cousin. What do you want from me? You have not come from the city with them merely to talk. You have longed for children, cousin. My husband is dead. How can I provide for two growing children? They can work. They will provide for themselves. The girl has no dowry. I will do what I can, the woman scoffed. You have two daughters of your own. How can you provide another dowry on a policeman's salary? I know what it is to have daughters, cousin. I will do what I can. The boy will rebel. The girl is Christian. They need a home. It is not forever. You say that, but no one has come forward. Not yet. No, not yet. Nadia brought water and the woman sat them beneath the vine canopy that hung between the two huts. As the policeman and the children drank, she squatted in the shade, sipping her own cup and looking deeply in front of her. How many summers have they seen, cousin? She asked at one point. For the boy, we think 12, he responded. It is harder to know for the girl, perhaps the same. Keeping her gaze on the ground, she sniffed in reply. Finally, she turned her head. A month, she said, fixing her cousin with a stare. I cannot afford longer. I am sorry for their plight, but we have many mouths here as it is. The policeman smiled and nodded. May good fortune find you, cousin. Thank you so much, Laurie. I know that you started writing a long time ago when you were still a medical student at medical school. What was the first piece of writing that you had published and how did that feel? Uh, well, you're taking me back a little way there. Um, the uh, the first one uh, would have uh, been uh, a short story called A Fish in the Rain. Um, and I think I wrote it when I was um, in final year medicine or thereabouts in the latter years of medical training anyway as a student. So I would have been... It would have been about 1980, I think, uh, 1979, 1980. And it was in the Christmas edition of Quadrant magazine, Mm -hmm. which uh, subsequently didn't make it through the 80s, I don't think. But um, uh, and so that uh, that was that was picked up. And um, uh, that was a um, it was well, it was very exciting. It was great to be published. Have someone else read read my things. Yeah, it was good. Tell us a little bit about your writing career after that, how it developed. I understand that you participated in a number of short story competitions. Yes, well, that's been in the last uh, 10 years or so, or 
um, even perhaps not not so many in the last few because I've I've taken to novel writing, but um, but my um, my short story writing began again. Um, um, oh, probably about two thousand and five, um, and uh, between nineteen eighty and two thousand and five, I had um, four children to raise and look after and a medical career and um it all got kind of a bit too much really um and so um priorities are priorities and and uh um it's it's been a, an involved um life and i think what i have done though is all the time is been to take note of where i am and i fortunately have a reasonably good visual memory and i can seem to be able to summon up scenes and um and the flavor of where i've been and 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 i also take pains to remember where i've been um and almost like store it so that when i do come to write i can draw on it and that's that's what i was forced to do for for a number of years laurie have you taken any writing classes any creative writing classes i did um uh with this novel i didn't do it uh, didn't do anything before then uh so with this uh when i had it in in draft stage um i um uh, started working with um um matthew hooper who's uh connected with the uh, victorian writers um and also anthony jacques who has run uh, many master classes for writing and and uh, he was very kind to take me on board. And so the uh, the fellow writers around the table were very happy to take the take the novel apart and tear it to shreds. And that was that was very good. It was exactly what I needed. So it was uh, it was a great start, actually. Um, you've got to uh, just get over the thought that it's not perfect and know that it's you're there to make it better. And so that was fine. Had you always wanted to write a novel when you had the time? Yes, I never thought that I would get the opportunity. Where did you get the idea for this story? Well, you raised the issue of, of um, perfectionism, um, and that actually came through the the other character, Kate. And I, Kate's a compilation of, of about um, three people I've met through my medical um, career, and it's brittle vulnerability um in in many uh, career-minded doctors is 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 there um and uh and that was counterbalanced by some experiences that i had from living in pakistan for a time um many years ago now let me just um, take you back for a second could you sure. just explain to our listeners who is kate what's her role in the novel so Kate is is really the the protagonist in the, in the novel, and she is uh, she it's the the, the the when she's around uh, pretty much with a, with a few exceptions she the, the novel is through her eyes. She lives in Melbourne and has been estranged pretty much from her mother, uh, from whom she was or through whom she was deeply traumatized, um, and uh, she then. Uh, uh, manages to to get herself through through medical training and specialist training, um, and her mother dies, and she uh, ends up going back to the home uh, in Kew, and for reasons she doesn't really understand, she doesn't leave, um, and 
uh, it's from there that she uh, she's influenced. Um, she's highly successful and and extremely good. Um, has uh, surprisingly very little confidence in herself, um, and uh, focuses on her work and distracts herself by her work. In fact, and lets it become her life. Um, and justifies her existence through it. We know from very early on that there are secrets in her past. There are things she is hiding from. She's trying to escape her past to some extent, which is haunting her. And you were starting to say before, in answer to my question, where did you get the idea for the book, that partly it came from time that you spent in Pakistan, I think as a student working as a doctor in a hospital there. Do you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that shaped the novel? Well, I was, I was I was actually a doctor at that stage. I'd taken twelve months off to travel, um, and um, and it was uh, uh, landed in a in a, um, a mission hospital. It was where I, I brought a, an ultrasound machine and and taught the the um, the, the local. Um, well, she was a gynaecology uh, um, uh, uh, resident doctor there. Um, and uh, it was an obstetric hospital, and we had a lot of uh, a, a lot of experiences. But it was about two hours north of uh, Lahore in a town called Gujarat, and uh, there was a uh, the, the the parish priest who was there was um, had been placed there ever since uh, he uh, took his vows, uh, which had been about twenty five years um, apart from visiting home every couple of years for a few weeks. That was his life. He'd been, that was his missionary duty. And he had a parish that uh, extended about 600 kilometres up to the Khyber Pass, up past Peshawar. Um, and we toured around uh, in his little car, um, visiting these, these sporadic Christian villages. Um, and um, it was in one of those villages that, um, the character of uh, Malika uh, emerged, um, and she was um, clearly um, incredibly bright. Um, managed to pick up things despite really having had minimal exposure, and and was entranced by the prospect of someone having um, medicine, medical knowledge, and. Uh, um, uh, was able to explain things to the locals um, somehow uh, while I was um, trying to do what I could, which was not very much really. And um, uh, and it occurred to me just how many children are like this who never have the opportunity, never have that capacity to to explore their talents and to develop their potential. She formed the basis for the character of Malika in your yep. book. You've just in that reading introduced us to Malika. We've met her when she's she's just been rescued. She and Tahir, this other young man, have both just been orphaned as a result yep. of a bus accident. When we met Malika in Pakistan, she's she's about 12. She's obviously very clever. She's very beautiful. Could you tell us a little bit more about what she's like and what life is like for her in Pakistan. Um, she's a girl of humble origins, and she um, misses her her parents very much. Um, and she's in this strange village, which with this strange woman initially, Aisha, who becomes her foster mother. Really, uh, she calls her her second mother um, or her other mother, and she 
for a time lost. She she's um, unable to talk following the accident, and it's only gradually that 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 recovers. But she's clearly uh, gifted, and uh, it's Aisha who first sees this and notices her handicraft in in sewing, uh, where she's gifted, and then she starts having access to the visiting priest who manages to be there every few weeks um, and he brings her books and she's she starts to pick up on that and and her her brilliance is is just starting to emerge uh, as she starts growing in the village and she's given special permission and oddly this estranges her from Tahir who we who we we heard about so boy. he was the young boy that was rescued with her. Yes, correct. And that that further estranges him from her. But it draws the village girls together because they have someone who can teach them something. Um, and, of course, the, uh, uh, the problem is that this doesn't suit the village elders because the, the village is, and this is one of the aspects of the book that um, is kind of there, which I, I don't go into it, to, to any great extent, but it, it's, it's a place that is based on survival and you do what you have to do to survive. Um, and in our society, of course, we've moved well beyond that. Um, and it's now about choosing what you want to do and what, what fulfills you. Well, in the village, there was no such, no such option. The elders of the village stop her from teaching the girls, don't they? Well, they stop it all to start with. And then the priest moves in and negotiates for her. But they still won't. They still won't let the other girls uh, partake. No. So, as you say, it becomes very clear to us that she is an exceptionally bright, gifted young woman. She does very well in a test that's set, and she's just about to leave that village when something terrible happens to her. We're not going to discuss what that is, but as a result of what happens to her, she ends up with some terrible injuries. Can you describe the injuries that she suffers? Her face is disfigured, uh, essentially. Um, her nose is, is shattered and displaced sideways and her eye socket is, is broken. Um, and, uh, and so her eye drops uh, accordingly. Well, as we find out through the, through the book, it's, it's looked at by the uh, doctors in, in Lahore and they tell her that um, it's too dangerous to try and fix it because of the connection between the nose and the base of the or the, the one of the critical bones in the brain or just out not in the brain but just beneath the brain in the frontal lobe there and so she takes to wearing a, a hajib what impact does that injury have on her and her self-esteem oh it's devastating of course one of the one of the sources of consolation for her was that she could see her mother in her own face uh, and that's taken away from her um, and uh, and she uh, she is a young woman vulnerable and needing to be herself and and explore her own uh, identity partly through the way she looks um, and that's taken away from her but the strength of character that she has and the strength of mind that she's able to bring to her character uh, really sees her through and she's actually able to um, uh, she's able not only to uh, 
accepted to some extent, but to also keep working despite it. And um, and I think that her interest then is is in her academic pursuits, which have uh, enormous uh, practical implications. So let's come now to where the lives of these two women collide, as it were. Kate in Melbourne. Kate is sort of in her mid to late 30s, I feel. Malika is about 15 or 16. So Kate has an uncle, her father's brother, who's a priest in Melbourne, and he has contacts in Pakistan and he hears about Malika and her fate, what has happened to her, and he hears that through a number of interventions, Malika is going to have the opportunity to come to Melbourne to study and, in fact, to study at the school, which was Kate's own school. So he asks his niece, Kate, the doctor, the plastic surgeon that we've been talking about, if she can do him a favour, if she could have Malika for weekends. Kate is initially very reluctant, but then she decides that she will give it a go. Why is she reluctant? What What's her life like at this stage before Malika comes into it? Well, she's isolated uh, and she's isolated herself. Um, and uh, she, as I say, she has a, a, a brittle, um, invulnerable um, shield that she puts up to the world and buries herself in her work so that she can justify her existence. Um, and um, uh, and the invasion of, of which, as she looks on it initially, uh, not only is it too much trouble, she's too busy, uh, and and she's afraid. She's afraid of um, that exposure to to someone else uh, at that level, having someone actually live with her. So it's quite threatening for her. I want to take you back to something you said when we started. You said that Kate and Malika are very different people. Mm. But it seemed to me, in fact, the more closely that you look superficially, they're very different in age, in background, um, in terms of the opportunities that they had in their lives. But, in fact, they're quite similar in many ways, aren't they? Some of the things that I've made a note of here is they're both very lonely. They're both haunted by secrets in their past. They both feel some shame about those secrets. And they've both turned to fill the gaps in their lives through work, through dedicating themselves to their work. So these two women meet, Malika arrives, Kate takes her out for the first time and an arrangement develops where Kate picks her up on a Friday night and Malika stays with her till a Sunday night. Could you talk a little bit about how the relationship or the friendship between them develops over time? Yes, well, it's it's. Uh, I think you're right. I think that um, that the undercurrents of uh, of shared situ- shared situations and in a, in a in different ways, life experiences draws them together. Initially, they they are both vulnerable and they both have secrets and they both. Um, uh, I think they see the goodness in each other as well. Which which is very important, um, and and uh, who among us um, doesn't recognise in someone else what we seek in ourselves, um, and perhaps can't accept. So, I think that's a strong link that that emerges very early, even though they're probably not particularly aware. And then I think there's a sense of fun that develops as well, which neither is particularly used to, um, but which they enjoy very much. Um, and and then um, um, there's a time in the there's a time in the in the book when 
in fact, I think it's Malika who does it first. She exposes herself physically to Kate, uh, her face. And of course, that starts a whole series of events that um, that Kate explores desperately trying to find a way to fix her because she said that she would. Um, and that, I think, that Malika, um, who, who sees the world through um, very, very sharp eyes um, and, and an understanding that belies her years, um, I think is very grateful to Kate for having done that and, and for trying so hard on her behalf, even though ultimately she's told that it's not possible. As you've said, these two women actually have a lot to learn from each other. And one really striking thing about both of them, I think, that we've talked about is that both of them carry guilt and shame about things that have happened in their past. And with Kate in particular, there's a lot of talk about her yearning to break free of her past, but she's not able to do that because of regret, because of guilt. And there's a lot a lot of the time she's saying things like, I just don't know that I can break free. And would freedom, she asks herself, always be so distant? What do they both need to learn about letting go of the past and how do you actually succeed in doing that? Good questions. I think they need to do two things. Um, One is to accept themselves and one is to forgive themselves. Forgiveness is perhaps the most difficult thing we can ever do, uh, particularly when we strive for perfection. And both of these women are striving for perfection in their own ways. We we know that Kate absolutely excels at what she does. When we meet her, she's acting as head of her unit Mm. and she's clearly had a very successful career. But we learn at one point she's given up a career in research because she says, maybe I just couldn't stand to fail again. And then there's a parallel episode with Malika. We see that she has this really precocious intelligence, so precocious that although she's still at school, she's working every Friday with a university professor on very high-level mathematical equations. He, a very experienced mathematical professor, regards her as a genius, but she's extremely tough on herself. And whenever she finds a problem with her equations, she gets very frustrated and she thinks perhaps she'd been a fool even to try to solve these equations. At a later point in the book, Kate gives some very good advice to Malika. She says, at some point, you have to back yourself. What does she mean by that? And it seems to me pretty clearly that that's a lesson that Kate herself also has to learn. I think that what she's saying is that you've got to put yourself on the line, that you have to accept the possibility of failure um, in your attempt. And um, without knowing that you can fail uh, and accepting that, you're never going to succeed at anything that's really hard um, because it, it is hard. And I think that you, you commit yourself as, as part of yourself in, the, in, that, in that commitment, knowing that it may not be right uh, or you may have it wrong, but you've actually, this is what you see and you've got to trust in yourself and go for it. And that, I think, is part of the essence of who we all are in our lives, that we, um, when we're really serious about something, 
we make a go for it, knowing that we may not get there, but we're prepared to take that on board as well. And I think that's what Kate's saying to her at the time. Laurie, I want to ask you about the concept of home, which plays mm. a very important role in the novel. Mm. There's a sense with both of these women, with Malika and with Kate, both of whom have had traumatic events occur in their past and both of whom are very lonely when we first meet them. They're both orphans. They don't have any parents alive now. They don't have very many close friends. Each of them has one close woman friend we see in the novel, but they're both pretty isolated people. It seems a little bit as if both of them are trying through the novel. They're yearning to find a place where they can just be. They're both yearning to find home. And at one point, Kate, she doesn't say she thinks, Home's, home was a place she had longed for but never found. Could you talk a little bit about that notion of home? Where is home? What is home? And what's the significance of the concept of home in this book? I think well, you, what you say is exactly right. They are both orphans and, um, and so their sense of home is, is automatically going to be altered and, and affected by that. Um, and it's played out uh, with Kate um, when she um, chooses to stay at the place in Kew where she'd never been comfortable. That's her mother's place. Her dead That's her mother's house. place after, yeah. the, after the funeral. In fact, her friend Lucy challenges her about that at some, at some point and says, well, we keep saying you're going to move, but you don't. You're still here. And uh, Kate struggles with that. But I think that uh, I think that. Um, for both of them, and, and Malika, from from her perspective, you know, uh, um, not only did she lose her, her primary home, she lost a secondary home, and and here she is um, in Australia and um, in in a dormitory uh, most of the week. But um, I think home is a is about us more than anything else. I think it's it's a sense of love, and. Uh, it's, you know, a, a lot has been written about it and, and I'm not going to say anything particularly new, but but I think that for both of these women, um, that sense of acceptance and love makes their place the home. Mm. So the, 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 it, it, um, uh, oh, it is an overarching or underlying principle to what we dress up and and do fancy things with and spend weekends in the garden at and so forth, if there's not love and acceptance there, then it's not home. Mm. Um, and I think that's what these two women discover as they as they spend time together. Inevitably, given that you've been a doctor for over 30 years, your knowledge of the, the medical profession and how it operates is apparent at, at a lot of stages of this book. There's one in particular I was really interested in. You, you talk about the, the competitive aspect. Kate's asked to act as head of her unit, but there's a man that she was at university with who's very jealous of her and who's trying to jostle her out of that role. The other aspect that I found really interesting is there was at a critical stage of the novel, there is a meeting of a bunch of surgeons. You refer to them as the surgical elite. And you explain that this is a meeting that takes place regularly. And this is when the surgeons work out basically what surgery is needed, who gets to have surgery and who doesn't. And there's a discussion which to an outsider uh, sounds very business oriented. There's a lot of talk about costs versus benefits and then risks versus benefits. And, and there's a particular discussion in this case about Malika and whether or not it would be safe to operate on her. 
again, without without giving any of that away, what I thought was really interesting was the following statement. They were there to help, of course, but at the bottom of that inclination lay decades of self-preservation. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that cost-benefit analysis which takes place and also the role played by self-preservation, what you meant by that. Yes, stepping stepping into familiar territory, but also not wanting to to dramatise it too much. Uh, as a preface, um, I, I would say that, uh, and in support of of all doctors, pretty much that I know of in the in the system, um, uh, the there is an underlying wish to do good, not to violate not to violate the the doctor patient uh, relationship. That aside, uh, doctors are humans, they're people, and they, they, it's a tough, hard world um, because advancement means fame and success, and um, they're very attractive to very driven individuals who spend all of their lives and, and careers wanting to get to a certain point. That meeting itself, it's probably more risk benefit that they're talking. What is the clinical risk? and what is the benefit to be gained. And that's a very common equation that uh, we all have to deal with. I've got to do a ward round in, in several minutes and, um, and I'm going to be making exactly those same decisions. Uh, what's the risk and what's the benefit uh, of addressing that risk? And so that becomes part of the fabric of what we do. The, uh, and that's how it has to be. But what's this self-preservation that you're talking right. about? So the self-preservation comes down to this, this personal career aspect. There are some surgeons who will, and doctors, physicians, obstetricians, whatever, who will not want to take something on because their, their um, personal uh, risk status will be adversely affected. So therefore, they will say, well, if I don't do any risky cases, my records are going to be fantastic. And that that plays out well because people can see that it's on the it's on the uh, public record. Mm. Are those statistics available to the public? Yep. That the success rates or otherwise of particular yes. surgeons. Yeah, and so that's I think one of the benefits of a multidisciplinary meeting like that is that there is a consensus, and you don't have one person saying, "Well, I'm going to protect myself and not do anything risky." When you have a multidisciplinary meeting, you can look at the risk benefit and. That's the benefit of having a service rather than relying on an individual and so forth. But, but you know, doctors don't like putting themselves uh, into the, you're the most risky person on the records, on the, on the public record we've got. And when you actually look at it, it's because they take on the cases that no one else will do. Uh, and that's, that's one of the factors in it. So that's the self-preservation component. My final question is about the title of the book, As Swallows Fly. There's quite a few discussions in the context of the book about swallows and how they do fly. And I gather that there's something quite particular about the way a flock of swallows fly together that's unusual that becomes a bit of a sort of recurring motif, a bit of a theme of the novel. Could you talk a little bit about that and the significance of the title? Yes. The Well, I suppose in, in, a, in, a, um, in a way... Um, uh, Malika certainly, perhaps to a lesser extent, Kate uh, uh, are swallows, and and the swallows and the way they fly um, form the basis of Malika's idea of um, of her 
mathematical equations, but the but it's the it's the randomness of the flight. Uh, it's the the leaders who who are not really leading. Uh, it's oftentimes the outsiders uh, on the wings uh, of the of the flock that that will take it in a different direction, and the rest of the the rest of the birds then follow. And it's this it's this changing, uh, restless um, mixing of uh, of that whole process that is evident in life as much as it is uh, in the book. And that's what Malika sees um, as she looks across the fields. It's what forms gives her the insight for her initial thoughts about how um, whether patterns may change and how you could uh, assess their their impact and predict them. And it's, I think also there's a brief uh, allusion there to um, the uh, Nataraj or the Lord of the Dance and the and the um, uh, the great Hindu um, uh, mystical. Uh, beliefs and and recognition. So it's sort of all of that um, condensed into a simple action of a small girl looking across the field at a flight of swallows. But the um, the quantum nature almost of it is there. Yeah. Laurie, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books about your beautiful book, As Swallows Fly. I wish you all the very best with it. And thank you again for appearing on the show. Thank you, Nicole. It's been an absolute pleasure, but thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Bye.